Continuing in our reading of Arthur W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God, The Sovereignty of God in Salvation, The Sovereignty of God the Holy Spirit in Salvation. Had our Lord been referring here to the gracious work which the Spirit would perform in those who should be brought to feel their need of Him, He had said that the Spirit would convict men of their unrighteousness, their lack of righteousness, but this is not the thought here at all. The descent of the Spirit from heaven establishes God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. The proof of that is, Christ has gone to the Father. Had Christ been an impostor, as the religious world insisted when they cast him out, the Father had not received him. The fact that the Father did exalt him to his own right hand demonstrates that he was innocent of the charges laid against him, and the proof that the Father has received him is the presence now of the Holy Spirit on earth. For Christ has sent him from the Father, John 16:7. The world was unrighteous in casting him out, the Father righteous in glorifying him, and this is what the Spirit's presence here establishes. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Verse 11. This is the logical and inevitable climax. The world is brought in guilty for their rejection of, for their refusal to receive Christ. Its condemnation is exhibited by the Father's exaltation of the spurned one. Therefore, nothing awaits the world and its prince but judgment. The judgment of Satan is already established by the Spirit's presence here, for Christ through death set at naught him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, Hebrews 2.14. When God's time comes for the Spirit to depart from the earth, then his sentence will be executed both on the world and its prince. In the light of this unspeakably solemn passage, we need not be surprised to find Christ saying, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. No, the world wants him not. He condemns the world. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. John 16, 8-11. Three things, then, the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth demonstrates to the world. First, it's sin, because the world refused to believe on Christ. Second, God's righteousness in exalting to his own right hand the one cast out, and now no more seen by the world. Third, judgment, because Satan, the world's prince, is already judged, though execution of his judgment is yet future. Thus, the Holy Spirit's presence here displays things as they really are. The Holy Spirit is sovereign in His operations and His mission, is confined to God's elect. They are the ones He comforts, seals, guides into all truth, shows things to come, etc. The work of the Spirit is necessary in order to the complete accomplishment of the Father's eternal purpose. Speaking hypothetically, but reverently be it said that if God had done nothing more than given Christ to die for sinners... Not a single sinner would ever have been saved. In order for any sinner to see his need of a Savior and be willing to receive the Savior he needs, the work of the Holy Spirit upon and within him were imperatively required. Had God done nothing more than given Christ to die for sinners and then sent forth his servants to proclaim salvation through Christ, leaving sinners entirely to themselves to accept or reject as they pleased, 
then every sinner would have rejected, because at heart every man hates God and is at enmity with Him. Therefore the work of the Holy Spirit was needed to bring the sinner to Christ to overcome his innate opposition and compel him to accept the provision God has made. We say compel the sinner, for this is precisely what the Holy Spirit does, has to do, and this leads us to consider at some length, though as briefly as possible, the parable of the marriage supper. In Luke 14:16, we read, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. By comparing carefully what follows here with Matthew chapter 22, verses 2 through 10, several important distinctions will be observed. We take it that these passages are two independent accounts of the same parable, differing in detail according to the distinctive purpose and design of the Holy Spirit in each gospel. Matthew's account, in harmony with the Spirit's presentation there of Christ as the Son of David, the King of the Jews, says, "...a certain king made a marriage for his son." Luke's account, where the Spirit presents Christ as the Son of Man, says a certain man made a great supper and bade many. Matthew 22.3 says, and sent forth his servants. Luke 14.17 says, and sent forth his servant. Now, what we wish particularly to call attention to is that all through Matthew's account it is servants, whereas in Luke it is always servant. The class of readers for whom we are writing are those that believe unreservedly in the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures, and such will readily acknowledge that there must be some reason for this change from the plural number in Matthew to the singular number in Luke. We believe the reason is a weighty one, and that the attention to this variation reveals an important truth. We believe that the servants in Matthew, speaking generally, are all who go forth preaching the gospel but that the servant in Luke 14 is the Holy Spirit himself. This is not incongruous or derogatory to the Holy Spirit, for God the Son in the days of his earthly ministry was the servant of Jehovah, Isaiah 42.1. It will be observed that in Matthew 22 the servants are sent forth to do three things. First, to call to the wedding, verse 3. Second, to tell those which are bidden all things are ready, come unto the marriage, verse 4. Third, to bid to the marriage, verse 9. And these three are the things which those who minister the gospel today are now doing. In Luke 14, the servant, capital S, is also sent forth to do three things. First, he is to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready, verse 17. Second, he is to bring in the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind, verse 21. Third, he is to compel them to come in, verse 23. And the last two of these the Holy Spirit alone can do. In the above scripture we see that the servant, capital S, the Holy Spirit, compels certain ones to come into the supper. And herein is seen his sovereignty, his omnipotency, his divine sufficiency. The clear implication from this word compel is that those whom the Holy Spirit does bring in are not willing of themselves to come. This is exactly what we have sought to show in previous paragraphs. By nature, God's elect are children of wrath, even as others, Ephesians 2.3, and as such their hearts are at enmity with God. But this enmity of theirs is overcome by the Spirit, and He compels them to come in. Is it not clear, then, that the reason why others are left outside is not only because they are unwilling to go in, but also because the Holy Spirit does not compel them to come in? 
Is it not manifest that the Holy Spirit is sovereign in the exercise of his power, that as the wind bloweth where it pleaseth, so the Holy Spirit operates where he listeth? And now to sum up, we have sought to show the perfect consistency of God's ways, that each person in the Godhead acts in sympathy and harmony with the others. God the Father elected certain ones to salvation, God the Son died for the elect, and God the Spirit quickens the elect. Well may we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Chapter 5 The Sovereignty of God in Reprobation Romans 11.22 Behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God. In the last chapter, when treating of the sovereignty of God the Father in salvation, we examined seven passages which represent Him as making a choice from among the children of men, and predestinating certain ones to be conformed to the image of His Son. The thoughtful reader will naturally ask, and what of those who were not ordained to eternal life? The answer, which is usually returned to this question even by those who profess to believe what the Scriptures teach concerning God's sovereignty, is that God passes by the non-elect, leaves them alone to go their own way, and in the end casts them into the lake of fire because they refused His way and rejected the Savior of His providing. But this is only a part of the truth. The other part, that which is most offensive to the carnal mind, is either ignored or denied. In view of the awful solemnity of the subject here before us, in view of the fact that today almost all, even those who profess to be Calvinists, reject and repudiate this doctrine, and in view of the fact that this is one of the points in our book which is calculated to raise the most controversy, we feel that an extended inquiry into this aspect of God's truth is demanded, that this branch of the subject of God's sovereignty is profoundly profoundly, we say, mysterious, we freely allow, yet that is no reason why we should reject it. That this branch of the subject of God's sovereignty is profoundly mysterious, we freely allow, yet that is no reason why we should reject it. The trouble is that nowadays there are so many who receive the testimony of God only so far as they can satisfactorily account for all the reasons and grounds of His conduct, which means they will accept nothing but that which can be measured in the petty scales of their own limited capacities. Stating it in its baldest form, the point now to be considered is, has God foreordained certain ones to damnation? That many will be eternally damned is clear from Scripture, that each one will be judged according to his works and reap as he has sown, and that in consequence his damnation is just, Romans 3.8, is equally sure, and that God has decreed that the non-elect should choose the course they follow, we now undertake to prove. From what has been before us in the previous chapter concerning the election of some to salvation, it would unavoidably follow, even if Scripture had been silent upon it, that there must be a rejection of others. Every choice, evidently and necessarily, implies a refusal, for where there is no leaving out, there can be no choice. If there be some whom God has elected unto salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, there must be others who are not 
elected unto salvation. If there are some that the Father gave to Christ, John 6.37, there must be others whom he did not give unto Christ. If there are some whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21.27, there must be others whose names are not written there. That this is the case we shall fully prove below. Now all will acknowledge that from the foundation of the world God certainly foreknew and foresaw who would and who would not receive Christ as their Savior. Therefore in giving being and birth to those he knew would reject Christ, he necessarily created them unto damnation. All that can be said in reply to this is no. While God did foreknow these ones would reject Christ, yet he did not decree that they should. But this is a begging of the real question at issue. God had a definite reason why he created men, a specific purpose why he created this and that individual, and in view of the eternal destination of his creatures, he purposed either that this one should spend eternity in heaven or that this one should spend eternity in the lake of fire. If then he foresaw that in creating a certain person that that person would despise and reject the Savior, yet knowing this beforehand, he nevertheless brought that person into existence, then it is clear he designed and ordained that that person should be eternally lost. Again, faith is God's gift, and the purpose to give it only to some involves the purpose not to give it to others. Without faith there is no salvation. He that believeth not shall be damned. Hence, if there were some of Adam's descendants to whom he purposed not to give faith, it must be because he ordained that they should be damned. Not only is there no escape from these conclusions, but history confirms them. Before the divine incarnation, for almost two thousand years, the vast majority of mankind were left destitute of even the external means of grace, being favored with no preaching of God's word, and with no written revelation of his will. For many long centuries, Israel was the only nation to whom deity vouchsafed any special discovery of himself, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, Acts 14.16. You only, Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3, 2. Consequently, as all other nations were deprived of the preaching of God's word, they were strangers to the faith that cometh thereby. Romans 10:17. These nations were not only ignorant of God himself, but of the way to please him, of the true manner of acceptance with him, and the means of arriving at the everlasting enjoyment of himself. Now, if God had willed their salvation... Would he not have vouchsafed them the means of salvation? Would he not have given them all things necessary to that end? But it is an undeniable matter of fact that he did not. If, then, deity can, consistently with his justice, mercy and benevolence, deny to some the means of grace, and shut them up in gross darkness and unbelief because of the sins of their forefathers generations before, why should it be deemed incompatible with his perfections to exclude some persons, many, from grace itself and from that eternal life which is connected with it, seeing that he is Lord and sovereign disposer both of the end to which the means lead and the means which lead to that end? Coming down to our own day and to those in our own country, leaving out the almost innumerable crowds of unevangelized heathen, 
Is it not evident that there are many living in lands where the gospel is preached, lands which are full of churches who die strangers to God and His holiness? True, the means of grace were close to their hand, but many of them knew it not. Thousands are born into homes where they are taught from infancy to regard all Christians as hypocrites and preachers as arch-humbugs. Others are instructed from the cradle in Roman Catholicism and are trained to regard evangelical Christianity as deadly heresy and the Bible as a book highly dangerous for them to read. Others, reared in Christian science, so-called families, know no more of the true gospel of Christ than do the unevangelized heathen. The great majority of these die in utter ignorance of the way of peace. Now, are we not obliged to conclude that it was not God's will to communicate grace to them? Had His will been otherwise, would He not have actually communicated His grace to them? If then it was the will of God in time to refuse to them His grace, it must have been His will from all eternity, since His will is as Himself the same yesterday and today and forever. Let it not be forgotten that God's providences are but the manifestations of His decrees. What God does in time is only what He purposed in eternity. His own will being the alone cause of all His acts and works. Therefore, from His actually leaving some men in final impenitency and unbelief, we assuredly gather it was His everlasting determination so to do and consequently that he reprobated some from before the foundation of the world. In the Westminster Confession it is said, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably foreordain whatsoever comes to pass. The late Mr. F. W. Grant, a most careful and cautious student and writer, commenting on these words, said, it is perfectly divinely true that God hath ordained for His own glory whatsoever comes to pass. Now, if these statements are true, is not the doctrine of reprobation established by them? What in human history is the one thing which does come to pass every day? What but that men and women die, pass out of this world into a hopeless eternity, and eternity of suffering and woe? If then God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, then He must have decreed that vast numbers of human beings should pass out of this world unsaved to suffer eternally in the lake of fire. Admitting this general premise, is not the specific conclusion inevitable? In reply to the preceding paragraphs, the reader may say, All this is simply reasoning, logical, no doubt, but yet mere inferences. <laughs> Very well. We will now point out that in addition to the above conclusions, there are many passages in the Holy Writ which are most clear and definite in their teaching on this solemn subject, passages which are too plain to be misunderstood and too strong to be evaded. The marvel is that so many good men have denied their undeniable affirmations. Joshua 11, 18-20 Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All other they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them, as the Lord commanded Moses. What could be plainer than this? 
Here was a large number of Canaanites whose heart the Lord hardened, whom he had purposed to utterly destroy, to whom he showed no favor. Granted that they were wicked, immoral, idolatrous, were they any worse than the immoral, idolatrous cannibals of the South Sea Islands and many other places to whom God gave the gospel through John G. Payton? Assuredly not. Then why did not Jehovah command Israel to teach the Canaanites his law and instruct them concerning sacrifices to the true God? Plainly, because he had marked them out for destruction. And if so, that from all eternity. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16:4. That the Lord made all, perhaps every reader of this book will allow, that he made all for himself is not so widely believed, that God made us not for our own sakes, but for himself, not for our own happiness, but for his glory, is nevertheless repeatedly affirmed in Scripture, Revelation 4.11. But Proverbs 16.4 goes even farther. It expressly declares that the Lord made the wicked for the day of evil. That was his design in giving them being, but why? Does not Romans 9.17 tell us, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth? God has made the wicked that at the end he may demonstrate his power, demonstrated by showing what an easy matter it is for him to subdue the stoutest rebel and to overthrow his mightiest enemy. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew 7.23 In the previous chapter, it was shown that the words know and foreknowledge when applied to God in the Scriptures have reference not simply to His prescience, that is, His bare knowledge beforehand, but to His knowledge of approbation. When God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, in Amos 3.2, it is evident that he meant, You only had I any favorable regard to. When we read in Romans 11.2 that God hath not cast away his people, Israel, whom he foreknew, it is obvious that what was signified is, God has not finally rejected that people whom he has chosen as the objects of his love. Look at Deuteronomy 7. 7 and 8. In the same way, and it is the only possible way, are we to understand Matthew 7:23. In the day of judgment the Lord will say unto many, I never knew you. Note, it is more than simply, I know you not. His solemn declaration will be, I never knew you. You were never the objects of my approbation. Contrast this with, I know love my sheep, and am known Loved of mine, John 10:14. The sheep, his elect, the few he does know, but the reprobate, the non-elect, the many he knows not. No, not even before the foundation of the world did he know them. He never knew them. In Romans 9, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in its application to both the elect and the reprobate is treated of at length. A detailed exposition of this important chapter would be beyond our present scope. All that we can essay is to dwell upon the part of it which most clearly bears upon the aspect of the subject which we are now considering. Verse 17 of Romans 9, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth.
These words refer us back to verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, God's love to Jacob and his hatred to Esau are declared. In verse 14, it is asked, Is there unrighteousness with God? And here in verse 17, the apostle continues his reply to the objection, We cannot do better now than quote from Calvin's comments upon this verse. There are here two things to be considered. The predestination of Pharaoh to ruin, which is to be referred to the past and yet the hidden counsel of God, and then the design of this which was to make known the name of God. As many interpreters striving to modify this passage pervert it, we must first observe that for the word I have raised thee up or stirred up in the Hebrew is I have appointed by which it appears that God, designing to show that the contumacy of Pharaoh would not prevent him to deliver his people, not only affirms that his fury had been foreseen by God, and that God had prepared means for restraining it, but that God had also thus designedly ordained it, and indeed for this end, that God might exhibit a more illustrious evidence of his own power. Unquote. It will be observed that Calvin gives as the force of the Hebrew word which Paul renders for this purpose, have I raised thee up, as I have appointed. As this is the word on which the doctrine and argument of the verse turns, we would further point out that in making this quotation from Exodus 9, 16, the apostle significantly departs from the Greek Septuagint, the version then in common use, and from which he most frequently quotes, and substitutes a clause for the first that is given by the Septuagint, instead of, on this account thou hast been preserved, he gives, for this very end have I raised thee up. But now, we must consider in more detail the case of Pharaoh, which sums up in concrete example the great controversy between man and his maker. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus 9:15 and 16. Upon these words we offer the following comments. First, we know from Exodus 14 and 15 that Pharaoh was cut off, that he was cut off by God, that he was cut off in the very midst of his wickedness, that he was cut off not by sickness, nor by the infirmities which are incident to old age, nor by what men term an accident, but cut off by the immediate hand of God in judgment. Second, it is clear that God raised up Pharaoh for this very end to cut him off, which in the language of the New Testament means destroyed. God never does anything without a previous design. In giving him being, in preserving him through infancy and childhood, in raising him to the throne of Egypt, God had one end in view. That such was God's purpose is clear from his words to Moses before he went down to Egypt to demand of Pharaoh that Jehovah's people should be allowed to go a three days journey into the wilderness to worship him. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Exodus 4.21 but not only so, God's design and purpose was declared long before this. 
400 years previously God had said to Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years, and also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge. Genesis 15:13 and 14. From these words it is evident, a nation and its king being looked at as one in the Old Testament, that God's purpose was formed long before he gave Pharaoh being. Third, an examination of God's dealings with Pharaoh makes it clear that Egypt's king was indeed a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. Placed on Egypt's throne, with the reins of government in his hands, he sat as head of the nation which occupied the first rank among the peoples of the world. There was no other monarch on earth able to control or dictate to Pharaoh, to such a dizzy height did God raise this reprobate, and such a course was a natural and necessary step to prepare him for his final fate. For it is a divine axiom that pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Further, and this is deeply important to note and highly significant, God removed from Pharaoh the one outward restraint which was calculated to act as a check upon him. The bestowing upon Pharaoh of the unlimited powers of a king was setting him above all legal influence and control. But, besides this, God removed Moses from his presence and his kingdom. Had Moses, who not only was skilled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but also had been reared in Pharaoh's household, been suffered to remain in close proximity to the throne, there can be no doubt but that his example and influence had been a powerful check upon the king's wickedness and tyranny. This, though not the only clause, cause, was plainly one reason why God sent Moses into Midian, for it was during his absence that Egypt's inhuman king framed his most cruel edicts. God designed by removing this restraint to give Pharaoh full opportunity to fill up the full measure of his sins and ripen himself for his fully deserved, but predestined, ruin. Fourth, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, as he declared he would. Exodus 4.21 This is in full accord with the declarations of Holy Scripture. The preparations of the heart in man, and the answer of the tongue, is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 Like all other kings, Pharaoh's heart was in the hand of the Lord, and God had both the right and the power to turn it whithersoever he pleased. And it pleased him to turn it against all good. God determined to hinder Pharaoh from granting his request through Moses to let Israel go until he had fully prepared him for his final overthrow, and because nothing short of this would fully fit him, God hardened his heart. Finally, it is worthy of careful consideration to note how the vindication of God in his dealings with Pharaoh has been fully attested. Most remarkable it is to discover that we have Pharaoh's own testimony in favor of God and against himself. In Exodus 9:15 and 16, we learn how God had told Pharaoh for what purpose he had raised him up. And in verse 27 of the same chapter, we are told that Pharaoh said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. 
Mark that this was said by Pharaoh after he knew that God had raised him up in order to cut him off, after his severe judgments had been sent upon him, after he had hardened his own heart. By this time Pharaoh was fairly ripened for judgment and fully prepared to decide whether God had injured him or whether he had sought to injure God, and he fully acknowledges that he had sinned and that God was righteous. Again, we have the witness of Moses who was fully acquainted with God's conduct toward Pharaoh. He had heard at the beginning what was God's design in connection with Pharaoh. He had witnessed God's dealings with him. He had observed his long sufferance toward this vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. And at last he had beheld him cut off in divine judgment at the Red Sea. How then was Moses impressed? Does he raise the cry of injustice? Does he dare to charge God with unrighteousness? Far from it. Instead, he says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Exodus 15.11 Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15.11 Was Moses moved by a vindictive spirit as he saw Israel's archenemy cut off by the waters of the Red Sea? Surely not. But to remove forever all doubt upon this score, it remains to be pointed out how that saints in heaven after they have witnessed the sore judgments of God, join in singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of nations. Revelation 15.3 Here then is the climax, and the full and final vindication of God's dealings with Pharaoh. Saints in heaven join in singing the song of Moses in which that servant of God celebrated Jehovah's praise in overthrowing Pharaoh and his hosts, declaring that in so acting God was not unrighteous but just and true. We must believe, therefore, that the judge of all the earth did right in creating and destroying this vessel of wrath, Pharaoh. The case of Pharaoh establishes the principle and illustrates the doctrine of reprobation. If God actually reprobated Pharaoh, we may justly conclude that he reprobates all others whom he did not predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. This inference the Apostle Paul manifestly draws from the fate of Pharaoh, for in Romans 9, after referring to God's purpose in raising up Pharaoh, he continues, Therefore, the case of Pharaoh is introduced to prove the doctrine of reprobation as the counterpart of the doctrine of election. In conclusion, we would say that in forming Pharaoh, God displayed neither justice nor injustice, but only his bare sovereignty. As the potter is sovereign in forming vessels, so God is sovereign in forming moral agents. Romans 9.18 Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. The therefore announces the general conclusion which the Apostle draws from all he had said in the three preceding verses. In denying that God was unrighteous in loving Jacob and hating Esau, and specifically it applies the principle exemplified in God's dealings with Pharaoh. It traces everything back to the sovereign will of the Creator. He loves one and hates another. He exercises mercy towards some and hardens others without reference to anything save his own sovereign will. That which is most repellent to the carnal mind in the above verse is the reference to hardening. Whom he will, he hardeneth. And it is just here that so many commentators and expositors have adulterated the truth. 
The most common view is that the apostle is speaking of nothing more than judicial hardening, that is, a forsaking by God because these subjects of his displeasure had first rejected his truth and forsaken him. Those who contend for this interpretation appeal to such scriptures as Romans 1, 19-26, God gave them up. That is, see the context of those verses, those who knew God, yet glorified him not as God, Romans 1, 21. Appeal is also made to 2 Thessalonians 2, 10-12. But it is to be noted that the word harden does not occur in either of these passages. But further... We submit that Romans 9:18 has no reference whatever to judicial hardening. The apostle is not there speaking of those who had already turned their backs on God's truth, but instead he is dealing with God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty as seen not only in showing mercy to whom he wills, but also in hardening whom he pleases. The exact words are whom he will, not all who have rejected his truth. He hardeneth, and this, coming immediately after the mention of Pharaoh, clearly fixes their meaning. The case of Pharaoh is plain enough, though man, by his interpretations, has done his best to hide the truth. Romans 9.18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. This affirmation of God's sovereign hardening of sinners' hearts in contradistinction from judicial hardening is not alone. Mark the language of John 12, verses 37 through 40. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Why? Because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Why? Because they had refused to believe on Christ? This is the popular belief, but mark the answer of Scripture that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Now, reader, it is just a question as to whether or not you will believe what God has revealed in His Word. It is not a matter of prolonged searching or profound study, but a childlike spirit which is needed in order to understand this doctrine. Romans 9, verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Is not this the very objection which is urged today? The force of the apostles' questions here seems to be this. Since everything is dependent on God's will, which is irreversible, and since this will of God, according to which he can do everything as sovereign, since he can have mercy on whom he wills to have mercy, and can refuse mercy and inflict punishment on whom he chooses to do so, why does he not will to have mercy on all? so as to make them obedient, and thus put finding a fault out of court. Now it should be particularly noted that the apostle does not repudiate the ground on which the objection rests. He does not say, God does not find fault. Nor does he say, men may resist his will. Furthermore, he does not explain away the objection by saying, you have altogether misapprehended my meaning when I said, whom he wills he treats kindly, and whom he wills he treats severely. But he says, first, this is an objection you have no right to make. And then, this is an objection you have no reason to make. The objection was utterly inadmissible, for it was a replying against God. It was to complain about, argue against what God had done. 
Verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? The language which the apostle here puts into the mouth of the objector is so plain and pointed that misunderstanding ought to be impossible. Why doth he yet find fault? Now, reader, what can these words mean? Formulate your own reply before considering ours. Can the force of the apostle's question be any other than this? If it is true that God has mercy on whom he wills, and also hardens whom he wills, what then becomes of human responsibility? In such a case, men are nothing better than puppets. And if this be true, then it would be unjust for God to find fault with his helpless creatures. Mark the word, then. Thou wilt say, then unto me. He states the false inference or conclusion which the objector draws from what the apostle had been saying. And mark my reader, the apostle readily saw the doctrine he had formulated would raise this very objection. And unless what we have written throughout this book provokes in some at least all whose carnal minds are not subdued by divine grace, the same objection, then it must be either because we have not presented the doctrine which is set forth in Romans 9, or else because human nature has changed since the Apostles' day. Consider now the remainder of the verse, verse 19 of Romans 9. The Apostle repeats the same objection in a slightly different form, repeats it so that his meaning may not be misunderstood, namely, for who hath resisted his will? It is clear, then, that the subject under immediate discussion relates to God's will, that is, his sovereign ways, which confirms what we have said above upon verses 17 and 18, where we contended that it is not judicial hardening which is in view, that is, hardening because of previous rejection of the truth, but sovereign hardening, that is, the hardening of a fallen and sinful creature for no other reason than that which inheres in the sovereign will of God. And hence the question, who hath resisted his will? What then does the apostle say in reply to these objections? Romans 9.20 Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? The apostle then did not say the objection was pointless and groundless. Instead, he rebukes the objector for his impiety. He reminds him that he is merely a man, a creature, and that as such it is most unseemly and impertinent for him to reply, argue, or reason against God. Furthermore, he reminds him that he is nothing more than a thing formed, and therefore it is madness and blasphemy to rise up against the former himself. Ere leaving this verse, it should be pointed out that its closing words, Why hast thou made me thus, help us to determine unmistakably the precise subject under discussion. In the light of the immediate context, what can be the force of the word thus? What but as in the case of Esau, why hast thou made me an object of hatred? What but as in the case of Pharaoh, why hast thou made me simply to harden me? What other meaning can fairly be assigned to it? It is highly important to keep clearly before us that the apostle's objection and his object throughout this passage is to treat of God's sovereignty in dealing with, on the one hand, those whom he loves, vessels unto honor and vessels of mercy, and also, on the other hand, those whom he hates and hardens, vessels unto dishonor and vessels of wrath. Romans 9, verses 21 through 23. 
Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? In these verses the apostle furnishes a full and final reply to the objections raised in the previous verse 19. First, he asks, Hath not the potter power over the clay? It is to be noted that the word here translated power is a different one in the Greek from the one rendered power in verse 22, where it can only signify his might. But here in verse 21, the power spoken of must refer to the Creator's rights or sovereign prerogatives. That this is so appears from the fact that the same Greek word is employed in John 1.12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, which, as is well known, the right or privilege to become the sons of God. Romans 9.21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? That the potter here is God himself is certain from the previous verse, where the apostle asks, Who art thou that repliest against God? And then, speaking in terms of the figure he was about to use, continue, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, etc. Some there are who would rob these words of their force by arguing that while the human potter makes certain vessels to be used for less honorable purposes than others, nevertheless they are designed to fill some useful place. But the apostle does not here say, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto an honorable use, and another to a less honorable use, but he speaks of some vessels being made unto dishonor. It is true, of course, that God's wisdom will yet be fully vindicated, inasmuch as the destruction of the reprobate will promote his glory, in what way the next verse tells us. Before passing to the next verse, let us summarize the teaching of this and the two previous ones. In verse 19, two questions are asked. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? To those questions a threefold answer is returned. First, in verse 20, the apostle denies the creature the right to sit in judgment upon the ways of the Creator. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? The apostle insists that the rectitude of God's will must not be questioned. Whatever he does must be right. Second, in verse 21, the apostle declares that the Creator has the right to dispose of his creatures as he sees fit. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? It should be carefully noted that the word for power here is exousia, an entirely different Greek word from the one translated power in the following verse, to make known his power, where it is dunaton in the Greek. In the words, hath not the potter power over the clay, it must be God's power justly exercised, which is in view, the exercise of God's rights consistently with his justice because the mere assertion of his omnipotency would be no such answer as God would return to the question asked in verse 19. Third, in verses 22 and 23, the apostle gives the reasons why God proceeds differently with one of his creatures from another. On the one hand, it is to show his wrath and to make his power known. On the other hand, it is to make known the riches of his glory. 
Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Certainly God has the right to do this because He is the Creator. Does He exercise this right? Yes, as verses 13 and 17 clearly show us. For this same purpose have I raised thee, Pharaoh, up. Romans 9.22 What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Here the Apostle tells us in the second place why God acts thus, that is, differently with different folks, having mercy on some and hardening others, making one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Observe that here in verse 22 of Romans 9, the Apostle first mentions vessels of wrath before he refers in verse 23 to the vessels of mercy. Why is this? The answer to this question is of first importance. We reply, because it is the vessels of wrath who are the objects in view before the objector in verse 19. Two reasons are given why God makes some vessels unto dishonor. First, to show His wrath, and secondly, to make His power known, both of which were exemplified in the case of Pharaoh. One point in the above verse requires separate consideration. Vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. The usual explanation which is given of these words is that the vessels of wrath fit themselves to destruction. That is, fit themselves by virtue of their wickedness. And it is argued that there is no need for God to fit them to destruction because they are already fitted by their own depravity and that this must be the real meaning of this expression. Now, if by destruction we understand punishment... It is perfectly true that the non-elect do fit themselves, for every one will be judged according to his works, and further we freely grant that subjectively the non-elect do fit themselves for destruction. But the point to be decided is, is this what the apostle is here referring to? And without hesitation we reply, it is not. Go back to verses 11 through 13. Did Esau fit himself to be an object of God's hatred, or was he not such before he was born? Again, did Pharaoh fit himself for destruction, or did not God harden his heart before the plagues were sent upon Egypt? Exodus 4:21. Romans 9:22 is clearly a continuation in thought of verse 21, and verse 21 is part of the apostles' reply to the questions raised in verse 20. Therefore, to fairly follow up the figure, it must be God himself who fits unto destruction the vessels of wrath. Should it be asked how God does this, the answer necessarily is objectively. He fits the non-elect unto destruction by his foreordinating decrees. Should it be asked why God does this, the answer must be to promote his own glory, that is, the glory of his justice, power, and wrath. A quote from Robert Haldane here. The sum of the Apostle's answer here is that the grand object of God, both in the election and the reprobation of men, is that which is paramount to all things else in the creation of men, namely, his own glory. Romans 9.23 And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. The only point in this verse which demands attention is the fact that the vessels of mercy are here said to be afore prepared unto glory. Many have pointed out that the previous verse does not say the vessels of wrath were afore prepared unto destruction, and from this omission they have concluded that we must understand the reference there to the non-elect fitting themselves in time. 
rather than God ordaining them for destruction from all eternity. But this conclusion by no means follows. We need to look back to verse 21 and note the figure which is there employed. Clay is inanimate matter, corrupt, decomposed, and therefore a fit substance to represent fallen humanity. As then the apostle is contemplating God's sovereign dealings with humanity in view of the fall, he does not say the vessels of wrath were afore prepared unto destruction, for the obvious and sufficient reason that it was not until after the fall that they became in themselves what is here symbolized by the clay. All that is necessary to refute the erroneous conclusion, that is, the non-elect fitting themselves in time to destruction, is to point out that what is said of the vessels of wrath is not that they are fit for destruction, which is the word that would have been used if the reference had been made to them fitting themselves by their own wickedness, but fitted to destruction, which in the light of the whole context must mean a sovereign ordination to destruction by the Creator. We quote here the pointed words of Calvin on this passage. There are vessels prepared for destruction that is given up and appointed to destruction. They are also vessels of wrath that is made and formed for this end, that they may be examples of God's vengeance and displeasure. Though in the second clause the apostle asserts more expressly that it is God who prepared the elect for glory, as he had simply said before that the reprobate are vessels prepared for destruction, there is yet no doubt but that the preparation of both is connected with the secret counsel of God. Paul might have otherwise said that the reprobate gave up or cast themselves into destruction, but he intimates here that before they are born, they are destined to their lot. With this we are in hearty accord. Romans 9.22 does not say the vessels of wrath fitted themselves, nor does it say they are fit for destruction. It says, instead, it declares that they are fitted to destruction. And the context shows plainly it is God who thus fits them, objectively by His eternal decrees. Though Romans 9 contains the fullest setting forth of the doctrine of reprobation, there are still other passages which refer to it, one or two more of which we will now briefly notice. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Romans 11.7 But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Here we have two distinct and clearly defined classes which are set in sharp antithesis. The election and the rest. The one obtained, the other blinded. On this verse we quote from the comments of John Bunyan. These are solemn words. They sever between men and men, the election and the rest, the chosen and the left, the embraced and the refused. By rest here must needs be understood those not elect, because set the one in opposition to the other, and if not elect, whom then but reprobate? Writing to the saints at Thessalonica, the apostle declared, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Now, surely it is patent to any impartial mind that this statement is quite pointless if God has not appointed any to wrath. To say that God hath not appointed us to wrath clearly implies that there are some whom He has appointed to wrath. 
and were it not that the minds of so many professing Christians are so blinded by prejudice, they could not fail to clearly see this. A stone of stumbling, 1 Peter 2, 8, and a rock of, or offense, even to them who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. The whereunto in 1 Peter 2, 8 manifestly points back to the stumbling at the word and their disobedience. Here then, God expressly affirms that there are some who have been appointed. It is the same Greek word as in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, unto disobedience. Our business is not to reason about it, but to bow to Holy Scripture. Our first duty is not to understand, but to believe what God has said. 2 Peter 2.12 But these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Here again every effort is made to escape the plain teaching of this solemn passage. We are told that it is the brute beasts who are made to be taken and destroyed and not the persons here likened to them. All that is needed to refute such sophistry is to inquire wherein lies the point of analogy between these men and the brute beasts. What is the force of the as, but these as brute beasts? Clearly, it is that these men as brute beasts are the ones who, like animals, are made to be taken and destroyed. The closing words confirming this by reiterating the same sentiment and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.